Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and as we get little by little closer to the wonderful Halloween season, you know, this is so cool. We uh, we get to keep talking to more horror writers. I had the great pleasure of talking to Ezekiel Kincaid, but you might know him better as the Pastor of Horror, which I gotta say is one of the coolest nicknames I've ever come across. Uh, Ezekiel, thank you for joining me, sir. It is so cool to have you here. Yeah, Max, thanks for having me on, man. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and talk with me and um, looking forward to talking about horror and writing and all the cool stuff that comes with that. Absolutely. And for the folks at home, this will be a bit squeamish, so you might want to hold off and have a dinner because this is going to be a tough one. <laughs> But anyway, uh, I want to dive first in by just talking about the nickname, the Pastor of Horror. How did this come about? Um, so the Pastor of Horror slash the Paranormal Pastor, which both nicknames that I have, it came about through my background. I was a pastor for 20 years, and I kind of did everything under the sun ministry-wise from working with children all the way to working with the, the elderly. And so being in a position like that and kind of pretty much seeing all that life can throw at people and, you know, and their, their different ages and their different transitions, um, it really created a diverse background for me. And, you know, as a pastor, you deal with people in very difficult situations. Uh, you deal with death a lot. You deal with heartache. Um, and so all of these things kind of contributed to what I write about in a lot of my stories. And so for me, taking this step into horror writing was was not a big step at all, uh, you know, especially with horror dealing with fear and dealing with the human condition and in a lot of ways dealing with the supernatural as a pastor all of those things just kind of flowed into being able to transition to write horror and it just really came easy and natural for me I've always been a big horror fan growing up uh got the crap scared out of me at six years old when I watched this made for tv movie with made for tv movie with Kevin Bacon called the demon murder case. Um, and it was all, it was a possession story. So at six years of age, I was already hooked on horror. And then it just kind of escalated through throughout the years. And when I decided to start writing, it was, uh, it was met with very mixed opinions. Um, got a lot of people who really pushed back with it and totally wrote me off, um, had a lot of people who were also very supportive with it. Um, so just because of my, my background, the name Pastor of Horror stuck, and then I do a column for the House of Stitch magazine called The Paranormal Pastor. Um, I've started a new review series for their site called Into the Void, where I interview people about um, psychic and paranormal experiences. So you know, that interest with the paranormal just kind of stuck as well. And that's just kind of what people started calling me. And I just kind of ran with it. Um, so, bet. Hey, hey, yeah, definitely. Because I, I think as, as far as like horror monikers go, that's as good as you get, really. Um, yeah. But one thing I'm curious about is when people learn that, of course, you're a horror writer, but also, also that you were a pastor for 20 years, uh, do they have questions? Oh, a lot of questions. I'll bet, right? <laughs> like, 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 how do these two go together exactly? This isn't kind of contrary. Yeah, they they do. They ask questions uh, about how it goes together, and I have to, I have to warn people uh, as well, especially some people who I don't know what the right word is, but maybe be. Um, a little uptight or offended about profanity and violence in stories. I have to tell them like, look, you're not getting Casper meets little house on the prairie. So, you know, just fair warning. If you read these books, I don't want to hear you come back to me and say, I can't believe you put that in your book. 
you know, I can't believe that you had your character say this. I I don't want to hear it because I'm warning you now. (laughs) This is what you will get. It's it's not, it's not Christian horror, which is what a lot of people automatically assume. Well, you're a pastor, so you're going to write Christian horror. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, I'm a Christian who writes horror stories and my background as a pastor and what I've experienced definitely influences that. But, um, you know, you're, you're not getting a lifetime movie. I didn't realize uh, that a uh, Christian horror was a thing. Is that, is that, is that like a real genre? It, it is a thing. Yes. Whoa. Yes. It, it is a thing. It's a small thing, but it's, it's there. Huh? It's there. Mind blown. I now have to go yeah. look up Christian horror books because I yeah. want to see what this is all about it. Cause like, cause I always thought that like someone with a strong, like religious background, hard just wouldn't work because it's mm-hmm. like goes against the belief system and the thinking and everything really. So, um, mm-hmm. I, one thing I'm wondering is that when you first began writing, do you have a hard time with, especially the really gory graphic stuff? I mean, I, I didn't personally, my only concern was once this gets published, what is the reaction going to be from, you know, those in my Christian community who may have more rigid beliefs than I do? And um, let's just say I was not disappointed <laughs> at some of the at some of the reactions. Man, I got I got lambasted, told I was going to hell, I was doing the work of the devil, um, you know, all kinds of all kinds of nice emails. I am Facebook messages, Twitter messages. Uh, I, you know, yeah. I'm not surprised be, uh, because I went to a Nazarene school, so I definitely saw a lot of that uptight religious group. And yeah, yeah. man, there's just no wiggle room with those folks. There is none whatsoever. Did that ever make you sort of question the choice? The fact that you were getting such like hate from this group? At times, yes, but for the most part, no, because I'm the type of person if you start to push back against me and tell you, tell me I can't do something or you're going to fail at this or I'm going to push harder. And so it was actually like the hate actually drove me to dive into it more into, and to keep at it. So it kind of had, I guess the opposite effect that they were hoping for, (laughs) You know, so but there uh-huh. must have been group kind of, uh, uh, but there like must have been folks like from your group that kind of followed you on this new journey. Oh, absolutely. There were people who were very, very supportive and were like because I always went at it as a fact if somebody asked me why, I would explain to them how I connected the two. And so they would ask, and not in a combative way, but in a genuinely curious way way that how does how do these two things connect for you in your own personal belief in theology especially as a uh, a former pastor and so I was able to talk with them about the human condition and fear and the supernatural and um, how all of those things we see in the Christian scriptures also flow into the horror genre and it was just uh, an easy, easy transition in my mind, easy to connect the two. But it's kind of like some people just don't ever think of it that way. Which says, I think, a lot about both religion and horror that these two can kind of cross over so easily. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you think your works would be different if you didn't have this religious background that kind of like fit into it? I think they would lack the emotional charge that is in some of my writing because, like I said, I draw a lot on personal experiences with some of my characters and with some of my stories. And so having been in some of those type of situations and feeling the emotions, feeling the tension, feeling the heartbreak, feeling the sorrow, the questions, the doubts, the heartbreak, knowing what that is like. Um, Also, the fear, especially when people are going through different type of paranormal experiences where they don't know what is this thing in my house? Is it evil? Is it good? 
is it a demon? Is it a ghost? Like what's, what's going on here? And so it would lack that emotional underpinning that I've gotten from having been in these situations. And so it makes it easier for me as a writer to take the reader and bring them into that emotion and that fear and that uncertainty, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Do you believe in things like ghosts and demons? I do. Really? Wow. Yes. Yes, I do. It is definitely part of my worldview. Huh. Was that all, was that like always the case even back when you were a minister? Uh, yes. And I got a lot of flack about it, especially ghosts, because there's a, a lot of people in the Christian religion who classify everything as a demon. And when you have somebody come out, who's especially a, a pastor in a position of authority, that's like, no, not every, not every supernatural thing you experience is, is of a demon or of an angel. Like they're, they're a ghost as well. Like that kind of creates more questions for people and tidal waves and stuff that I've had to deal with uh, in the past four or five years since I started writing horror. But uh yeah, I, I do. I've gotten to go on some paranormal uh, investigations with some teams um, that were, I, I'm very selective about what I do in that round because there is a lot of fake out there. And there is a lot of stuff that is for show and everything like that. So I'm very selective about when I do these things, about who I do it with. Um, but I can genuinely say the the ones that I have been with, with the people that I have selected, we have seen some pretty crazy stuff. Okay. I want to talk a little more about that because yes. I've definitely seen a lot of the shows and the movies and so forth. Um, but, but what's involved in actual paranormal investigation? So I had the chance to, uh, my fiance and I were in Kentucky at the end of August and we, went with uh, DC Camo Man. He's got a channel called Professional Paranormal Research. <clears throat> and what I liked about him is none of his videos were pre-recorded. He did everything live stream. That's and new. So, I like that. Yes. And so what I was seeing on these videos and stuff with him, I'm like, this is real-time stuff. Mm. And so he and I just started talking, started building a relationship. And next thing I know, we're up there going on uh, an investigation with him. And so he does everything live stream. Um, he's got the, the K2 meters that pick up the readings of the electromagnetic fields, um, a motion detector. Uh, he's got people listening on the live stream with headphones to pick up any type of EVP voices that may come through and uh, the one we went with um, people were hearing EVP voices coming through the live audio and it was just us three out there um, they were taking still shots of the live stream and you could see the outlines of other people with us and uh, the lights um, motion detectors were going off around us in the same spots um, we had a little cat ball, a little light-up ball that lights up when you touch it. And um, it was this, literally one of those things where we would sit it on the ground and just sit there and nothing happens. And then we start communicating with the spirit and asking it to communicate through the ball if it had enough energy to hit the ball. And the ball just starts pinging, bam, 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 bam. It's all, it was all on live stream. And um, you can actually go on his channel and see some of those videos. It's professional paranormal research. He is definitely one I would recommend because I've seen it firsthand and can say, you know, there may be a lot of other fakes out there, but this was the this was the real deal that I saw and experienced with him. Wow. How do you know when something is bunk? Well, for example, you know, if you if you see something like that cat ball going off and you walk over to it and you see a bug crawling across it. <laughs> well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> that it's 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 fake. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's and the thing about what we did going late at night, it assures that nobody else was out there in the cemetery that we went with, but 
you know, uh, a lot of times there can be background noises, other people in places that you go that can, you know, make it not as authentic. Uh, a lot of these shows that do their pre-recorded stuff, they will plant things, plant voices. Um, and so for me, the best, uh, the best thing that eliminates all of that was him doing everything on live stream. Mm. So everybody saw what we were doing real time, saw it was just the three of us there. Uh, so, I mean, for me, doing it that way really cuts out a lot because you're not using a pre-recorded EVP. Mm -hmm. They're hearing these voices in in real time and stuff like that. So um, that would be my recommendation if there are any paranormal researchers listening. Like, if you believe that you are authentic and you want other people to think you're authentic as well, then I would recommend doing the live stream approach because it cuts out a lot of the things that can be faked. Yeah. And I think it's also more honest too, because if you do encounter something that does, that just isn't anything, you know, like, uh, like, you know, like, like someone tells you, Oh, so-and-so place is definitely haunted. You go there, nothing happens. You're at least mm -hmm. honest about that. Yeah. And that happened to us. We went to this uh, place there in Kentucky that had been on, um, I think it was a travel channel about how haunted it was and nothing. We did a live stream there and there was nothing. Wow. And we were honest about it saying, hey, there's, there's nothing here. Huh? Uh, because the thing about if a place is really haunted, man, it's going to be haunted 24 seven. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't <laughs> think spirits keep like normal, like nine to five hours. I'm pretty sure it's an all time yeah. dealy. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we went to this semi-famous place and there was just nothing. What would you say are one of the more memorable spots that you've been to? This this last trip to Kentucky was by far the most memorable because when we went to this uh, this haunted cemetery, I had in the investigations that I've done, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen that much activity, man, in 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 my life. So it was. Uh, that one is is by far the most memorable paranormal investigation I've been on. Now I've had other different supernatural experiences, but as far as paranormal investigations go, that was definitely that one takes the cake. Now this is, I think, is a result of just too many movies and TV shows. But I think we've all come to associate haunting with bad. If someone says a spirit in your house, it's like, okay, how am I going to die? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that isn't always the case, right? Mm -mm. It's not always the case. Um, a lot of times you have very good and, and benevolent spirits. Um, the new movie that's out, The Black Phone. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen the trailer heard? for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, not want to give away too much for anybody who hasn't seen it. But, I mean, it's it's obvious from the trailer that, you know, it's about a kidnapping and, and ghosts. But what I, what I like about it is... Um, doesn't necessarily present every ghost in the movie as evil. Yeah, I think I remember from the trailer, like, and this is all in, in the trailer, so there's this isn't a spoiler, but like the spirits help the new the newest yes. victim kind of fight back. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they do. Huh. So not not everything is malevolent. Oh, that's encouraging. That's good to know. Um, yeah. Not everything's wanting to possess your soul. Oh <laughs> man, now you let me down. I was expecting that kind of shit. <laughs> Are there are there any spots that you really want to check out just because they're so like famous for being haunted? I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about supposedly famous haunted places. Uh, famous haunted places. Um, so I I don't know. Maybe maybe not. The the stuff I like is kind of the more obscure. That you hear somebody had an experience there, word of mouth, mm. and so you go out to check those out, and those those are the places that can be surprising. Yeah, that makes sense because I feel like if something's really famous for something, it's probably like just bullshit. Yeah, uh, you know there is definitely a that thing of that uh, collective delusion where you know people will believe this and they'll go into it believing and then faking an experience or faking a feeling about something and. You know, it just causes this mass chain reaction. Um, and so, 
you know, when we go into places, we, I guess when I go into it, I'm automatically assuming to debunk it. So, oh, really? Yeah. So if something does happen, then I'm like, wow. Huh. So I, I go into a place thinking it's probably not. Now, is so. that so that you don't like miss, like a miss assume something as being a reaction from a ghost? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, you know, I have a very scientific oriented brain, you know, I, I love science. I love studying, um, cosmology um evolutionary biology like all, all of the whole science realms are just uh fascinating to me and so i think that helps me hmm. stay grounded and look at things objectively so uh you know not not everything is always going to be i don't go into it saying i'm going to find something if that yeah. makes sense no it does it does i, th- I think if you keep a little I think if you keep that uh, that uh, skepticism ni- uh, nice and high, you're not going to immediately assume, oh, that thing was definitely a ghost, and it was just the wind or a bug moving or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yep. Do, now, yep. now, do these um, experiences ever make it into your writings? Um, yes. The, uh, the foreword in The Dawning is about my own personal experience with a ghost. Um, who definitely heavily influence this whole series of of books. And so I, I will relay personal stuff um, at times. And the forward to the dawning has that entire story pretty much from beginning of end, from beginning to the end of when I first saw the ghost to the influence on the writing and then until she, I stopped seeing her. Okay. Um, but, you know, and the thing about it is, is I don't want people to think that I go around having these type of experiences 24 seven, cause it's just, it's, it's not, it's not true. And I would say anybody who does go around saying that they have these experiences 24 seven are probably lying. <laughs> Um, because they're, they're not that commonplace, Yeah, um, which makes them all the more special when they do happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I felt like what had happened with this experience and what happened with the ghost of this little girl and influence in the story was too profound, too cool (laughs) to, to not be able to to share with, with my readers. Cause I want, you know, I always want my readers to know a little bit of something about what went on behind the scenes in the making of a, of a book. Um, it helps give them a context and it also helps put the, the author in a more personalized light. Yeah. You can see their journey through uh, what they went through with getting the story in the hands of the readers. All right. Well, speaking of stories, sir, I want to talk about the dawning because yeah. this, uh, just from the uh, just from the description, I was scared shitless, and I haven't actually read the book yet, which I'm going to, and I'm probably going to regret it because I'm sure it's going to scare the hell out of me. Uh, but let's talk about the story of the dawning. This is this is book one in the Dreadful Death series. Mm-hmm. So the whole series follows the evolution of a young girl named Theodosia Whitfield, from seven years of age to thirteen years of age. Um, about her slow descent into uh, the darkness and into uh, demon possession. And the story takes place in the early 1800s, which I love that time period. There's just something foreboding about that time period, the 1800s and the 1900s, um, back before the days of a lot lot of modern technology, uh, no cell phones, you know, no quick call to the, the police. Um, so there's a lot that you can do as a horror author with that time period to create tension and setting and and fear and creepiness. And so her father, Charles Whitfield, is a professor at UNC. The story takes place in Chapel Hill, and he uh, is over religion and ancient documents. 
and he begins to unearth these these ancient documents about this entity called a tetramet. And as they begin to read about this entity, and that's where the name dreadful death comes from, is tetramet. It's a combination of Hebrew and Latin, which means the dreadful death. And so that's where we got the title of the series from. So while the father is studying these documents, this entity has its guardian demon out pursuing Theodosia. And, you know, he, the demon appears to her and starts to converse with her. And you see Theodosia slowly get engulfed by the darkness. Um, Things start going around, uh, going on around the home. Um, She is able to kind of travel back and forth between this realm and I took from HP Lovecraft the ethereal plane she's able to travel back and forth between this realm and the ethereal plane through her dreams where she um, encounters these some of these creatures um, but she also has a psychic ability gift but the problem with this gift is that when it's so powerful whenever she uses it it draws out creatures from the ethereal plane into her reality that want to try to possess her, her body. So that's why she ends up having the guardian demon to protect her from these creatures. So it is uh, the first half of the book of the dawning is a little bit of a slow burn as you're seeing her start to progress, but um, a little before halfway in the book, it really shifts in the overdrive and it goes balls to the wall. And then book two and book three are just nonstop terror infused, nightmare inducing imagery. Um, so it is a, uh, people have described it as a mix between the exorcist Carrie and Pan's Labyrinth. How do those three go together? Jeez. I can see like the first um, two to the third one. Wow. Nice. It's well, there's uh, I'm a, creature feature fan at heart as well and so we get into the ethereal plane a lot with with theodosia and i'm able to describe these creatures and then also as they cross over into her reality um i give descriptions of the creatures and there's some some fights and interactions with these creatures as well and um just to let the reader know these are not your run-of-the-mill horror type of creatures they are very very original i'm very proud of (laughs) coming up with these these type of monsters so i think that uh, the readers will enjoy the description um, and the imagery of of these these creatures as well Mm. i want to talk a little more about theodosia um as you mentioned the series kind of follows her progression from 7 to 13 her connection with this ethereal plane and her connection to this, you know, entity, this demon. Is she a villain, though? Is she, like, the, the bad guy in the story? You're going to have mixed feelings for Theodosia as you read the book, which was my intent. In some instances, you're go- your heart's going to go out to her, and you're going to fall in love with her. And you're going to think she is adorable, and you're going to feel sorry for her and what she's going through. And then several pages later, you're going to be like, they need to kill the bitch. Just, just kill her. Just, they, they just need to just get rid of this kid. She's evil. She's creepy. Be done with her. Um, but the family doesn't see it all the way because she's still masking it a lot, but the reader sees it and you're just like, uh, Oh my gosh. Like there's a, there's a scene in there that, um, several of the reviewers have commented on that they go from, um, actually being scared in the story to really being scared of Theodosia. Oh. So there is a there's a scene in there where that transition happens where you go from, you know, this is just a cool horror story and you go from being scared for Theodosia and what she's going through and then you're actually scared of her. And that was my goal. Um you know, is to for her to incite real fear in in the hearts and minds of the reader. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly, the notion of the possessed child—it's 
not uncommon theme in horror books and movies. How do you get mm-hmm. your character to stand out, though, from the others? So, uh, obviously, I drew inspiration from Reagan from The Exorcist and uh, Carrie from the book and movie of the, of the same name by Stephen King. And I wanted to do something different with with both of these because with with Carrie, you know, Carrie White's mom, she's this hyper-religious person who just hammers away at her daughter. And then on The Exorcist, you have the extreme opposite. This family's not religious at, at all. And so what I wanted to do is take a possession story and what what makes this so frightening is this family is a great, godly, God-fearing Christian family. They're gracious. They're loving. They love their kids. Um, You know, they take them to church every Sunday. The dad is involved in religious studies. And so I wanted to take what we would assume would be this safe environment, right? This is safe, right? This would be the last place that a demon could get in. When actually what I do is show that it is not safe. It is not safe. So you set this bulwark up of this almost impenetrable family fortress and the darkness still finds its way in. And uh, Theodosia is, is different as well because I try to go back in the 1800s and, you know, let, let's just say the education system was a little different back then. And you had kids grasping hold of larger concepts earlier, especially in the realm of uh, theology. And so Theodosia actually wrestles at times with what she is experiencing and then what her family has taught her. And so you also see a child going through a major crisis of, of faith at a young age is as well in this story um and you know the the book is not overly religious it's not a preachy in your face uh type of type of thing but religion is connected with it as it is with most possession stories um and so that is there but i wanted to present the religious aspect of it especially with this christian family to show that not even this family was immune from getting attacked by the darkness. So where does that leave all of us? <laughs> well, I'm fucked. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we all could could say that. So it's uh, yep. <laughs> meant to take something that is supposed to be safe and comforting and totally just rip it to shreds. Ooh. Now, you mentioned uh, prior to this recording that the second volume is now in the editing process. A third mm-hmm. one is also in the works. If it's not too much of a spoiler, how does the Adosia progress as the series continues? So the second book is called The Gathering. And what happens in this book is there's, there's two main plot lines. The guardian demon, Hophni, begins to visit the other children and he's starts to gather the children to Theodosia. He's preparing them for her cult-like status as a leader of this entity, the Tetramed. And so he comes to them through very vivid dreams and prepares them that, hey, Theodosia is going to be speaking to you in a way that she's never spoken before. So listen be alert and listen. So you have this one aspect of her um, gathering the children. And then the other plot line that develops in the story is uh, the growing power of Theodosia's psychic ability and what she is able to learn and what she is able to accomplish, um, how she's able to start manipulating other people through this, this power. Um, so all of this is is setting the stage for for book three. So book two is like a bridge. 
um, which is what it's intended to be. In, in book two, you're going to see the real transition of Theodosia to the uh, little spawn demon of hell that she is, which when you get into book three is when um, everything falls apart and everything goes south uh, really, really quick. Now you, it definitely a lot of scary things in the second book, but it's like, as each book goes on, it just gets more terrifying as the story goes on, which is the way I intended it because I wanted the last book to really mess people up. <laughs> so, uh, Oh my God. Do you feel like this is what you're going to be known for like 20 years down the road? I, mean, you, I know you've done so many other things, but do you think like this series would be kind of like the one that people think of when they hear your name? Uh, I would hope so. This was um, my, up until this point, my magnum opus of, of horror uh, because it was, a uh, like I've said, the exorcist was a huge influence. And what I liked about William Peter Blatty is he was able to scare the crap out of you and the exorcist and in Legion, but he also made you think really deep about stuff. And, uh, that's what I intended to do with this series. And, um, you know, based on the feedback I've gotten so far, uh, I seem to have accomplished that. Um, you know, so I hope that one day that that this will be kind of one of those works that when people think of Ezekiel Kincaid, that uh, the dawning, the gathering in the morning, the whole Dreadful Death series will be the one that they think of and say, yeah, that book scared the crap out of me. Yeah. That, that series wrecked me. <laughs> I'm hey. not okay after reading that. <laughs> yeah, that that will be a great quote for the book jacket. I'm not okay after reading this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Did it take a while for this to get to what you wanted it to be? Because it sounds like it's so intricate and detailed and thought out. It took me four years to write this book, this wow. series. Like I, I have it. I have all the books finished because it was originally one manuscript. Um. But yes, it, it took me four years. It took uh, several rewrites um, to get it to where I, I wanted it. So it was a, uh, definitely a long process. None of my other stuff has taken that long, including the things I'm, I'm working on now. But it was just, uh, this book is just very, very special to me. I know each, each author has a, a book that's close to their heart. Um, and this one is definitely that book for me that is very close to my heart. And so I wanted to make sure that uh, I had it to what I wanted it to be and what I wanted the reader to experience. Mm. Now, so, so you said that, that this was originally uh, one manuscript. What happened to kind of yes. break it up? I went with uh, with Raventail for this book. Um I had trouble getting publishers with it um, because of certain scenes in the book. Shocker. Um, yeah. Uh, and there, there will have to be a couple of trigger warnings on, uh, on book three when it comes out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Raven tail was, was good with the book and they like to do, they like to do series and, at first, I was kind of like, well, I don't know if this thing breaks up well. And I started going back through the book and looking at it, and I was like, holy crap, this ends perfectly in three, like three sections. And I was like, huh, I think this would work as, as a series. Um, because just the way that I wrote it, um, got the story arc, goes to the first third of the book, then it builds the second third and then gets to its culmination in the last third of the book. So I didn't intend it that way. It just kind of happened. And uh, it, it ended up working out great to be a, a good fit for Raventail. So nice, nice. ended up going with it. Now, this question came up um, in a previous interview with another uh, with another uh, horror author, actually, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kevin Lucia. And um, yeah, I, lo I love Kevin Lucia's stuff. Kevin's man. work He's is amazing. Writer. Oh my yes. god! 
and the fact that he's now working with Cemetery Dance. Well, he's been working with them for mm-hmm. a while, but the fact that he's working with Cemetery Dance Publications is so perfect for him. You know, the best person yeah. to be in charge of that. Do you have a particular method of offing a character that is kind of like your hallmark? Man, it it depends on what style of of genre that I'm writing. Like, uh, in I have a horror comedy book, uh, The Adventures of Johnny Walker Ranger Demon Slayer. And um, one of the things I like with the kills in that one is uh, lots of exploding flesh in, in, uh, in that one. And, and being a horror comedy and a lot of the over-the-top gore, that one was, was fun. I like having heads explode i liked having limbs um severed and spewing blood and and that one um i don't know i guess for me it's when i have a character die it's kind of like what would be a cool way for this particular character to die and if they're a a bad character like an evil character i'm like what do they deserve what type of death do they deserve in this book? So, um, <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good question. Cause I feel like with a, with a, with a bad character, there's a certain like satisfaction. Like, yeah, you take that, you know, you get chewed up in that, in that like wood chipper, you get your head cut off or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. There is. And there, there's a certain satisfaction too, as an author, when you're able to kill off some of those characters, <laughs> It's like, yeah, vengeance is mine. You had it coming. I mean, that's (laughs) the cool thing about being a being the author, man, is you can uh you can make your characters get their justice (laughs) if you want to. There you go. There you go. Make them get it good. (laughs) You sound like you enjoy this a lot. (laughs) I do. I I love writing, man. Uh it is just uh one of the things that that keeps me keeps me going is is writing and being able to write um but like you know like with all other authors who can identify with this as well it is very joyful but also very nerve-wracking at the same time because you're you're looking and you're like uh you know sometimes i mean getting stories and books accepted for publication is hit and miss uh you know you'll get one thing accepted and then you can go months without something getting accepted. And so there's a lot of, a lot of up and down and it really messes with your emotions at times. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. I've heard it is such like a self-confidence killer to yes. submit something that you think is like, Oh, this is my baby. This is my kid. This is my joy. And then you get just flat rejection, rejection, rejection. Like you could like paper the walls with all the rejection letters you get. Yes. The rejections are way more common than acceptance. That's why, uh, you know, when people see authors, when they get stuff accepted and they pl- they plaster it all over social media, it's not that we're being braggadocious. It's just like we're really excited. We're like, <laughs> you have no idea how many rejection letters I have gotten it on this story. It took so long to get here, guys. Let me yes. have this. Yes, just back away. Let me have my moment here. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we're able to rejoice and rejoice with one another. When you see another author get something accepted because you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he's excited because no telling how many other rejections yeah, he, like, like, like you know, he got with that story. Yeah. I mean, when you get that news, you know that was effort. You know that was work. Even if they went with like a self-publisher or even started their own like publishing like like name, you know, it probably took a long time to get there. It was not just like they, okay, I'm gonna start a publisher, and the next day you're you got you've got you, you get your like company up and running. No, it takes a long yeah. time, folks. It's always it, a long it, road. It is a long process, especially in the writing industry. Yeah. How about you? Did you have to go through a lot to get these books out there? Yes. Now, it, it was weird when I first started writing. Like it, it just kind of happened all of a sudden. Like my my first story that I wrote and submitted for publication got accepted like three months later. So I was really kind of set up for failure in my expectations at that point. (laughs) That doesn't normally happen. And it certainly didn't happen anything like that afterwards, but um, getting books, getting manuscripts 
it accepted um, is a is a long process because you just each publisher is looking for something different and they're not always looking for the same thing at the same time one year a publisher may be looking for these type of stories and the next year they may be looking for this one and if you would have had your manuscript to them two years before when they were looking for that one it might have gotten it but then it doesn't fit with what they're they're looking for so a lot of it really you know it takes talent and skill and yes that is a big part of it you have to have the talent and the skills and we're all trying to improve in that, but it's also luck and timing as well. And that's why we, when we send out our stuff for publications, we are blasting it to every publisher that we can, that we can find that is, that is taking uh, manuscripts. Um, and it's, it's a process finding the, finding the right one. Mm. Oh, I, I've heard Definitely. so many stories. Yeah. I like like really the struggle is so real for writers. I I've heard some writers say, "Oh, this took me like ten years to get published because I just got some rejections, I put it away, I was so discouraged, and I picked up again years later, and there we go." So um, as we begin to close things out, I do want to ask about your name because this is your pen name, and I'll mm-hmm. be honest, I think you're the first person to come I've come across who uses a pen name. How did this come about? My birth name, I didn't think, was a very cool name for horror writing. So I kind of tossed some ideas around. And I was always a huge fan of the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Like, that Old Testament book is just blows my mind. And the thing about Ezekiel the prophet is he did a lot of stuff in the name of God that was really countercultural to the religious establishment of that day. And so he's always kind of had a, a special place in my heart. And so as I, I thought about my writing and what I was going to be doing and knowing that I was going to be going against the grain and uh, a lot of stuff that I was raised in and a lot of circles that I used to run in, um, I wanted a name to, to fit. And, uh, Ezekiel just seemed to be the perfect name. And, um, I always liked the, the name Kincaid because there is a, uh, there's a character in a nightmare on Elm street part three named Kincaid. And he's like the, uh, he's the macho guy, man. He's, he's ready to take on Freddie. He's just got that, that attitude. Like, you're not going to scare him. You know, he's he was a he was a go getter and tough and brave. And so, uh, you know, I knew I was going to have to have some of that to be able to to do this as as well. So I put the two names together and it's like Ezekiel Kincaid. I said, that actually sounds pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I looked it up, to see if there was anybody else writing with a name similar like that. And there's not. So I was like, OK, number one, this will be memorable. Uh, number two, when people google it it's gonna go straight to me and pull up all my stuff and nobody else's so that's kind of how I ended up going with that that pen name and sticking with it for the writing yeah very cool man very very cool all right well sir the last question the big question what can folks expect from you in the future what is down the road for you I've got uh these two books coming out in the Dreadful Death series. Um, I've got book two of my horror comedy, Johnny Walker Ranger Demon Slayer Volume 2, will be dropping um, over the next year from Stitch Smile Publications. Um, I also will be having a novella come out called The Vengeful Lambs, which is a a vampire story that's um, not twilight um for sure it's uh got kind of a from dust to dawn feel with a more of a claustrophobic setting um and then i also have a folk horror fantasy that will be coming out called the gospel of lilith that traces the uh, mythology of lilith and kind of combines her Hebrew mythological origin with her um, um, 
mythology in uh, in Wicca as as well. So I kind of combine those two mythologies and just really kind of take this character from the beginning and develop her story into how we understand her today. So it's uh, different than anything I've done, which all my stuff is is different. I try not to do the same thing twice and write in the same style twice. So when people read my stuff, you're not going to get the same thing with each book. Like it's going to be a different style, um, which has worked well for me so far. So we'll, yeah, I'll say, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'll say. All right. And uh, where do folks go if they want to learn more about you? And of course, check out the works. So the easiest place is Amazon. Um, you can look up on my, uh, my author page in there um, and it will pull up um, the books I have out, the anthologies I have out. Um, I've got some stuff coming out in Sirens Call magazine and with Hellbound Books uh, here in the next several months. Um, I'm also on Twitter, Ezekiel Kincaid, uh, Instagram as well. Same thing, Ezekiel Kincaid. And uh, just got a new website up and running called, it's called just the Paranormal Pastor. Um, so you can look at that uh, as well. But those are the places you can find me and my works. Nice, nice. And I guarantee you folks, we will, uh, he and I will, I will be talking very, very soon because there's a lot of great stuff coming out. Until next time, Ezekiel, uh, take care, sir. And I definitely look forward to the new books. Yeah, thank you for having me, Max. I appreciate it. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And with that, folks, this episode has come to a close. Big thanks to Ezekiel for joining me. I had a great time talking with him, and I cannot wait to check out The Dawning. You can follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. Get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com and check the show out wherever you find your favorite podcasts, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.